All right. Good afternoon, New Philly. You know, on the first Saturday of each month, Pastor Aaron and I, uh, we do what is called a campus pastor huddle with each of our campus pastors from each of our church plants. And so on the first Saturday, which was yesterday, we got to uh, Skype in with Pastors Paul and Jamie in Australia. Uh, We Skyped with Pastors Caleb and Mina down in Busan. Uh, And then we also had time to spend together with Pastor Marcus, who is the new Philly Itaewon campus pastor, and Pastors John Michael and Skye. We get to meet them in person because we're in the same city. And Pastor Aaron and I, we just want to say how uh, proud we are of our campus pastors and how such amazing leaders they are in the body of Christ and how we are so blessed uh, to have these uh, powerful, anointed, discerning campus pastors leading each of our uh, uh, church plants. And they're doing an amazing job. And, uh, you know, each month we take this time to relationally connect with them, but also logistically talk about different things, uh, pastoral uh, issues that are going on at that campus. And uh, so that Aaron and I can uh, better pray and speak into all of these different situations uh, with the heart of the Father and with the wisdom that Christ gives. So, Pastor Aaron and I, we just want to say uh, how happy we are and how pleased with our, we are with all the leadership of our campus pastors and also all of our wonderful uh, lay leaders at each of our church plants. Uh, you guys are doing an amazing job just serving the house. Uh, we hear so many encouraging reports uh, that our hearts were filled with joy every time we have these campus pastor huddles. Last Sunday, we had community group leaders meeting, which happens on the last Sunday of each month. And I love these meetings as well because it's an opportunity for me to hear about what's going on in your community groups. So you, you all thinking right here, like, you know, you know what's going on in Australia, but you don't know what's going on in my life here in the city of Seoul. Well, contraire, okay, I know what's going on. Uh, uh, especially if you're giving your community group leaders a hard time. We know about, right, we talk about you in these meetings. Now we're playing. We don't mention any names, um, but uh, the community group leaders, uh, you know, they don't uh, complain. We actually spend most of that time uh, just talking about how their community groups are going. Uh, and I can't say the same for each campus because I, I, I didn't sit through all the campus group, uh, community group leaders meetings. But at Hongdae, I can proudly say, man, our community groups are going amazing. Uh, I hope that's how you feel if you're a member of our community group. But the leaders think it's going amazing. <laughs> They're just like, man, this is like, it's awesome. You know, and, I, you know, and, you know, and there's a CG1 and CG2. So they just kind of praise each other the whole time. Um, it's a beautiful thing. But uh, Aaron and I, we just want to say how happy we are to be giving leadership to our, our amazing church. And uh, I'm just so thankful and blessed. Uh, Right now, uh, I am in the middle of a sermon series called Wisdom with Work. Today, our other four campuses are streaming the sermon in, and they will be jumping in to part three of the sermon series. So if you're watching from Itaewon, Shilin, Busan, and Sydney, and you would like to get parts one and two, be sure to go to our podcast or onto our YouTube channel. And you can go ahead and listen to those first two sermons. Now, in my first message, A Biblical Theology of Work, I started with this quote. No one ever said on their deathbed, I wish I'd spent more time 
at the office. And there is wisdom in this quote. We don't ever want to pursue our career, our success, and money at the expense of our families, marriages, friendships, health, or uprightness with God. But I mentioned that it's important to keep such quotes and its wisdom in tension with the whole counsel of God. Because God's word shows us that scripture is a book all about work. I then talked about the myth between uh, the myth of the secular call versus, versus the sacred call, uh, which is a call into full-time ministry, priests and pastors and things like that. And this was the prevalent view of the Catholic Church, and it is still commonly found in most evangelical churches. And the reformers, they try to uproot this view and this thinking by teaching that there is no dichotomy between a secular call and a sacred call. Because every call that comes from God is sacred. Whether you are a priest preaching at the pulpit or whether you are taking care of a baby because you just had a baby. (laughs) Every call of God is sacred. And then I go on to uh, look at some foundational passages that help to build, build up a biblical view and theology of work. In last week's message... Uh, every assignment has value. We looked at Colossians chapter 3, verse 22 to 24. And I talked about how every assignment that we are given, whether it's in our studies or in our workplaces, every assignment is God-given. And if it is God-given, there is inherent value and purpose in each of our assignments. And how as Christians, we can often miss that value and purpose by just looking at our work as just a means to get a paycheck or just looking at it as a means to uh, help out with missions at church. And uh, a lot of times these assignments that God gives us in our lives, they are designed to qualify us for the next assignment, either in this life or in the next. And so when we do our work, we ought to do our work not onto men, but onto God. And I talked about how important it is not to derive your sense of value and worth from work. But as those who have our identity in Christ, we are able to add value to whatever work assignment we're given. No matter how menial it is. And and, um, as I've been preparing for the sermon series on wisdom with work, uh, I cracked open Tim Keller's magnum opus on the integration of Christian faith and work. The book is called Every Good Endeavor. Anybody actually read it here? Anyone read Every Good Endeavor? Okay. All right. Uh, It's a brand new book, right? So I picked it up down in Australia when I was at Keller's um, church planning conference. And I picked it up earlier in March. And let me tell you, this book is an incredible book. Actually, the title of the book comes from a John Coltrane quote. Right after Coltrane, he's a famous jazz saxophonist. He got converted to Christianity. Uh, and he, and he, there's this quote. Anyway, it's in the beginning of the, the front flap of the book. Anyway, that's where the title of the book comes from, Every Good Endeavor. And I want every New Philly leader at every campus to buy a copy of this book and read it this year. In 2015, I want it read, uh, I mean, next year. Okay, this upcoming year. Because it is that important. 
And for our young congregation struggling with mostly entry-level jobs, this book is essential in digging out the wisdom, resources, and hope that the Bible provides for work. You know, for our young congregation, many times we, we're, we just started our jobs. It's just been one year, a few months. We're so excited. Yeah, you know, dream big, you know. But for people who are in here who've been working for several years, you know, you start to get a little jaded from that. Ah, shut up. You know, wait until it's been a couple of years and we'll see what you're saying then. Uh, Because there is a difficulty and a hardship you do face when you do work. No matter how fulfilling it is, no matter how in line it is with your what you think your purpose and calling is. There is a mundaneness. There is a frustration. People get tired. And so a lot of times Christians don't know how to deal with that. So they're quit and find another job. And they get really excited because that's a brand new job. And then eventually they realize they hit the same issues there. And so um, we need the Bible to speak into uh, us regarding these things. We need the wisdom, resources, and hope that the Bible provides and if you read this book, Every Good Endeavor, it's going to really unpack that for you in a very intelligible way, in a balanced way. You know, um, this is not in my notes, but you know, in the beginning of this book, you know, um, Keller's mentioning that there are different viewpoints that Christian churches and ministries emphasize when it comes to theology of work. For example, people who are from the evangelist movement oftentimes will tell you that the primary purpose of your work, God-given work, It's for you to evangelize your coworkers. That's the primary purpose. So if you go to ministries like that, it's all about evangelizing your coworkers. Uh, If you go to, um, what's another example he used? Uh, He had some good examples. Uh, (laughs) He actually uh, mentions the actual movements here, but I'm not going to mention them. Uh, uh, Actually, I mentioned one. Small group movement. In the small group movement of the 20th century, um, the purpose of work is to give one another nurture and support for the struggles and hardships that they face at work and uh, emphasizes the need for inner spiritual renewal and heart transformation. Uh, And then, you know, anyway, there's different emphases that you can get from different church movements and ministries. And a lot of times these work emphasis can seem to be in contradiction to one another. And so, you know, Tim Keller's effort through this book is to try to bring a balanced, deep, and biblical view of integrating Christian faith into the workplace. Very important. I think it's one of the most important pieces of literature that I think God has given to the church through this gift of man. And I want every single new field leader, once again, reserve active leader. I want to read it. Even if you're not a leader of the church, I want you to read it. If you're, if you're some from far, if you're, if you're not even a some from far, you're just listening to our sermon. You found it through a, a friend you met in Iowa while you're passing through some airport who gave you. You have some weird stories of how people found us on the Internet or found us uh, through a, a random friend. But uh, I really highly recommend this book. It answers certain questions like why do we need to work in order to lead a fulfilled life? Why is work so often fruitless, pointless, difficult? How can we overcome the difficulties and find satisfaction in our work through the gospel? Now, I'm going to preach just three more messages in the sermon series. 
using uh, some of Keller's material. And I'm excited to preach today's message. But in particular, I'm really, really, really excited to preach next week's message because it's going to mess y'all up a little bit. Uh, but today's is really good as well. Uh, I could probably preach like 20 messages if I get through this entire book, but I'm not going to do that. Instead, I hope to read and digest Keller's book and implement it into all of our teachings and culture and structure and discipleship in the years to come. Because I want our community to have a robust and balanced view of integrating our faith into the workplace. Now, I'm going to begin today with a question. Work. How do you view work? How do you view work? Some people's experience of work is very hard. It's very difficult. They go to work and they return home frustrated and tired. They conclude that work is something to be avoided. Or at best, endured. Perseverance of the saints. Yeah, I got to persevere through my job this week. Lord Jesus, help me. Give me the grace to get through another week. Because work is frustrating. It's tiring. Let me just do the minimum and be the first one to leave. Their motto is TGIF. Thank God it's Friday. Some people who feel this way respond by, uh, actually, they have a weird response. Their profound response is they actually work harder if they find work to be something to be avoided. Their mindset goes like this. Let me work like crazy the next 20 years and make as much money as I can so that I can retire as early as I can and get get the work out of the way as soon as I can so that I can do the things that I really want to do, like serve on missions. Or travel the world. Many people, including many Christians, believe that work is a curse. They believe that work is a result of God's curse on Adam and Eve's sin. They think that when Jesus returns, they can experience everlasting freedom from work. Everlasting retirement is their idea of heaven. Therefore, they tend to dread or even hate work, and they see work as a means to serve their own career advancement or their own self-interest. These self-interests could include things like saving up lots of cash so that you can move back home and do what you really want to do. Um, Pursuing leisure, like traveling the world, feeding or caring for your family. Just very selfish type pursuits. And they see work as they find meaning through, through kind of meeting these needs using work. Others who think work is a curse feel the only way to find meaning in their lives is through pursuing more spiritual interests. All oh, those selfish people. No, 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 no. I'm a little bit more spiritual. All right. I, I find meaning in my work. Because work is a means for, uh, for me to give offerings to missions, to serve the church on the weekend, to be involved in philanthropy work, and et cetera, et cetera. 
So there are a category of people that dread or hate work. On the other hand, there are people who are obsessed with work. They go to work and they don't go home until it's really, really, really late. And they are often the last ones to leave. You see, because we are creatures that crave affirmation and validation, there are people who hate work, and then there are people who are so obsessed with it that work has no limits. They sacrifice their marriages, friendships, health for the sake of work. Sleep and Sabbath are the things that are to be avoided or endured. So there are two kinds of people, right? People who think work is a curse and they dread it. And then there are some people who are obsessed with work and can't get enough of it. Whether you are in school getting ready for work, looking for work, or going to work, once again, let me begin with that question. What is your view of work? You know, one thing that I found to be very common here in our church community in, in the city of Seoul, I guess in Korea, and this, I guess I'm not sure how things are in Australia, but here in Korea, let me tell you down under what it's like here in Korea. The majority of our young people here in our church, they dread work. Some of them would be as far as to go and say, I hate it. But they find meaning still. And how do they find meaning? Well, work gives me the ability to serve New Philadelphia Church for the glory of God. <laughs> my work gives me the ability to help my friends who are in full-time ministry so that they can do the real good, that's, the real work that's really meaningful and going to last into eternity. You know, and... and most of our community in Korea, that's the view I find that they have toward work. And so what, what, what are some of the results of that? You know, I talk to um, the managers and the employers who employ you. And they don't always have glowing reviews for our church community. You know, you would think, you know, hey, New Philadelphia Church, yeah. You know, you guys have the best employees. You know, you, the people from New Philly, man, they really work with creativity, amazing innovation, just a, a wonderful teamwork, just such a loving and caring. Nope. <laughs> They're the first ones to leave. Told me that they have to go to some Emmaus event. You know, uh, they uh, are not good within a team environment, especially when there's people in that team that aren't very Christian, very low patience or tolerance, you know? And I think our view, our theology of work, which has been mostly very either selfish or shallow, has been resulting in a lot of bad fruit or a lot of missing out on God's perfect will for your purposes here in your workplace. A lot of you are going through the same tests, repeating the same mistakes 
And I think it has a lot to do with your shallow theology of work. Now, we live in Korea. And so we have the opposite problem coexisting right next to you. You're one of your neighbors probably has one of these uh, problems. Because in Korean and Japanese work culture, what is the problem? What's the most common problem? People are overworked. Americans are going, what? How is that possible? But for Asians, that is the norm. That is the virtuous thing to do. You do not leave work unless the highest ranking manager leaves. If the highest ranking manager decides to serve Facebook till 9 p.m., you are going to be at your desk till 9 p.m. Because it is the unspoken rule in Asian work culture that you don't clock out before your managers do. So in, in the Asian you know, setting and in Korean companies, we have the opposite problem where people are, are overworked or they're obsessed with career invest, advancement. Uh, today's message, I hope, is able to address um, both sides of the spectrum. Now, to better understand our attitudes toward work, it is worth investigating the presuppositions that have shaped Western culture. Greek philosophy is a huge contributor to the things that we value today. We think as Christians, we're getting it from the Bible. But if you are not careful, what you will find that even within the church, there is a lot of Greek philosophy and Greek presuppositions that have been ingrained into the Christian church. Why? Because the Christian church was nurtured. Our history is mostly rooted in Western philosophy. So that's what you study. When you go to seminary, this is the way I would sum up three years of seminary in order to get a master's divinity degree, okay? This is what getting an MDiv looks like. You study Western philosophy, and you try to dissect it and separate it from what the Bible teaches, and that's like the entire study of your three years in seminary, okay? And for people who don't get that, you're going to be in a lot of trouble because you're not going to be able to identify how you got your theology, You're going to think it's from the Bible, but you're not going to be able to find it in the Bible because you you may have gotten it from Western philosophy. Anyway, uh, in the Greek account of creation, there was a previous age when human beings and gods, they lived on earth in peace and harmony. During this golden age, neither human beings or gods had to do any work. The earth produced lots of food. There was plenty to go around. So paradise in this Greek account of creation, paradise was marked with leisure. Eat, drink, and be merry. Let's just chill. Spend time together. All right, that was the picture of paradise in Greek literature. Work actually is introduced later in the Greek creation account as a necessary evil. That was regulated to human beings by the gods. The gods, they never do any work because that's beneath them to do. They will never do any work. Human beings are the ones supposed to do, do the work. So to the Greek philosophers, work was a curse. That's the way they saw it. Work is a curse. And those in higher social classes, they would use their wealth to hire slaves to do the menial work for them. So it frees them up to do Divine activity like contemplation and thinking about philosophy 
In fact, Aristotle said that unemployment is a necessary prerequisite in order to do these divine-type activities, these higher-type activities like thinking about philosophy and contemplation. So this is the uh, kind of the Greek uh, ethos that has given us some of our presuppositions regarding work. Now, the biblical account of creation stands in stark contrast to this Greek account. In the Genesis account, God is described in Genesis 2.2. All right, why don't you turn to Genesis 2.2. We'll look through a few verses here in Genesis. I'm going to read this in the ESV. Genesis is the first book in the Bible. Genesis 2, verse 2. It says, on the seventh day, God finished his, everybody say, work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So in the Genesis account, God is described as creating the work by being, uh, creating the world by being at work. You know, the Hebrew word for work here is malaka, which is the same word used to describe ordinary human work. So it's not like they use, the Hebrews used a different word for divine work. You know, it's the same word you would use to vacuum your floor and clean your house. Work was not a necessary evil that came into the world later. It was there from the very beginning. With God participating in it himself. Work is not seen in a condescending manner. The God of the Bible is not going, ew, I'm not touching that. God is not going, I'm too holy to be involved in that kind of work. There's no condescending tone at all. Work is seen as having inherent value for God himself does work in the beginning. Can somebody say amen to that? Okay. So I'm trying to shift your paradigm here a little bit. God, Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the world with work. Uh, Look at Genesis 1.31. Genesis 1.31 says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. God not only creates the world with work, but Genesis one thirty one it shows us he finds joy in it. He not only did work, he liked it. He enjoyed it. He delighted in it. He said, this is very good what I've done. God finds what he has done beautiful. God is not saying here in Genesis, hey, let me get this over with so I can go back to governing the whole universe. God, instead, he does the work and he goes, hold on, let me just chill for a second. Let me step back. Let me step back. Let me take a look. Let me take a look. He's like an artist looking at a canvas and going, wow, I did that. This is so good.
So God creates the world with work. And he not only does work, but he delights in it. Uh, second thing, God cares for the world continually with work. So the second chapter of Genesis, if you look here, explains that after the world was created, God continues to do work to care for his creation. So it's not like the um, God of, uh, what is it, dualism, where he you know, winds up the clock of the world. He creates the world and then lets it go and then he just watches what happens. Is that dualism? Am I saying that right? Deism. Is it deism? Deism. I'm sorry. Deism. Yeah. It winds up the clock and just lets it go and watches. That's not the picture of God that we get in the Bible. God creates the world and he's so interested, fascinated. He's continuing to be involved. Okay. This um, theologians call this work of God providence. Everyone say providence. providence. Look at Genesis 2.8. Look at this. Genesis 2 8. And the Lord God planted a garden. Wow. Okay, let's just stop for a moment. Can you imagine God planting a garden? <laughs> That's crazy. Just, just, I remember growing up, my mom used to plant like these like tomato gardens and, and fruit gardens and, and vegetable gardens in our front tiny little ghetto yard in Philadelphia. It's like this tiny little ghetto yard that, you know, we have to share with our neighbor. Because we're row, row houses, you know. You don't really know when our boundary ends and theirs begins. You know, their stuff will be coming over and our vines will be going over. Anyway, I just remember my mom, like, digging away at the dirt. She had to get her hands dirty. And when she ever asked me to help, I don't want to help out. I don't want to get in there and all, all that dirt. But she's guard, she was gardening, planting. And then she had to go back and trim little vines so that you know and then put in stakes to make sure that the tomatoes were growing up healthy god plants a garden (laughs) that's crazy okay i mean i thought it was pretty profound not only that verse six if you look a little earlier it says a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground what is that? God, God is, you know, in summertime in Philadelphia, you know what I hated doing every single day? Watering the lawn. My mom, you know, we get this hose and, you know, the hose was mad ghetto. It got better and better each year. But the hose would get all ghetto and the kids in the neighborhood would steal our, like, our spray gun. So we have to, like, constantly screw it in and take it inside and then take it outside, put it back on. You know, it's ghetto like that in Philly. Water the lawn. I hated doing that. And God is watering the lawn. Okay. I found this very profound. I never stopped at these like little details like this. But you know, as I'm preparing this message and you know, Keller is pointing out these verses, I'm like, whoa, this is pretty profound. Um, because in the Greek philosophy, this is absurd. How dare that is blasphemous? How dare you say that my God planted a garden? He will never touch dirt. All right, you can have your God, but my God, He not He not only plants the garden, He be watering that garden. You got an irrigation system you know not of. Uh, now, the rest of the Bible actually tells us that God continues this work as our provider. 
as a provider not only for human beings but for the entire world. Uh, Psalm 145, the Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving toward all he has made. Verse 15, the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. Verse 16, you open your hand and you satisfy the desires of every living thing. You ever watch the Nature Channel? You wonder, you, you, you get ever fascinated, man, how do all, how do all them zebras eat? I mean, I mean, you know, you go to an event and, you know, people who are in charge of the hospitality, they have to worry about making sure they feed everybody. These zebras, they just run around in the wild, you know, yeah, I think there's food over there. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah all right, I'll follow you. <laughs> next, next thing you know, zebras go over there and they get, they get to eat all they want. How do, how, how do they know that there's enough food for all them zebras? Okay? And then over there also are waiting. Some lions that are going, all right, just follow me. I don't know, but I might, I think, I think there are going to be some zebras coming up through here in this piece. All right, just follow me. Just follow me. Just follow me. Oh, there, 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 there. All right, look at all them zebras. (laughs) All right, cuz, it's time to feast, all right? I mean, God is feeding the zebras and the lions. You don't do that. I mean, zoo, I think zookeepers do a worse job than what God does in feeding the zebras and the lions. And the lions, you ever go to a zoo? You know, but hey, lion, hey, 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 lion. Lion's like, man, I'm tired <laughs> and hungry. Man, the only thing I get to eat around here is the same old steak every single day. Man, I just wish I was up in the wild, you know. I can get some zebras and antelope and all kinds of things that just come across my path. Jesus actually describes the father in Matthew chapter 6 as working to provide. He says, uh, don't worry about your life. What you're going to eat, what you're going to wear. He says, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. They don't open bank accounts. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? God is his He's at the work of doing his providence. Like he is the provider and he feeds the desire. He fulfills the desire of every living thing at all times. If a bird ever drops down dead from the ground, that bird probably deserved it. All right. Because <laughs> God feeds every bird of the air. All right. It, but it is, not, is it not crazy that more birds don't just drop dead, you know? The birds are like, all right, I think I can make it. I think I make it, you know. Oh, man, I'm tired. Oh, I don't think I can make it. Oh, I'm dying. I'm dying. I'm dead. <laughs> like, how come that doesn't happen more often? It's because God is providing. He's working at all times. When's the last time a bird hit your car dead from, from the sky? All right. No, they'd be pooing on your car. They'd be like, look, God provided for me again. <laughs> you know, but they don't drop dead. They do not drop dead. I think that's noteworthy. This is good theology right here. All right. So God creates the world with work. God continues to provide for the world with work. And then third, we see in the Genesis account, God wraps up the, Genesis, the creation account with, com- with God commissioning man to carry on his work on the earth. Genesis one twenty eight. I just read it in the NIV. It says, God blessed them and said to them, 
Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Fill the earth and subdue it. The word subdue implies that although everything that God made was good, God left the world undeveloped with incredible potential for exploration and cultivation. God gave gave a mandate to mankind to go and unlock this potential through what? Through prayer? Although, you know, prayer is very important. No, through work. Cannot build a city on just prayer alone. You got to go and labor away. You got to do work. There's got to be a civil engineer that plans out a bridge that is safe. There's got to be mechanical engineers that fix the cars that are building the bridges. There's got to be architects that are able to build not only useful buildings, but beautiful buildings. You know, some, some buildings, it costs extra money to make it look nice. That's because some buildings are meant for office use and other buildings are meant for you to just enjoy its beauty for the glory of God. Subdue. It means that the world was left undeveloped. God did that on purpose because he said, I want you to go and unlock its potential. But if you're going to do that, you're going to need to go get a job. You're going to need to go and do some work. And by the way, I don't want you to work two days a week, three days a week, All right, I want you to work six days a week and you rest on one. And that's a command. Now, although God works for us continually as our provider, the Genesis mandate reveals that man is called to work for him as his royal royal representative on this earth. We not only work for him, but the Bible gives us deeper revelation that we actually, it's God who works through us. That's probably the more theological accurate picture. In Philippians 2.13, it says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. Amen? Amen. So, so God creates the world with work. He takes care of the world, provides for it with work. And then he gives a mandate to man, get to work. And we are to work for him, but not only work for him, but realize that by the spirit of God, he is working through us. Now, consider this revelation that we find in this Genesis account. Work was part of paradise. Let me say that again, because it was really profound when it hit me. (laughs) Work was part of paradise. When you think of paradise, when you think of heaven, you're thinking retirement, (laughs) rest, leisure, vacation. But I don't know. I don't know if this is um, comforting to you at all. (laughs) But paradise originally had work in it. So I would venture to think that maybe when Jesus actually returns, he's he's not going, all right, I'm here. I know y'all been working away, 
But I'm here to set you free from work. Hallelujah. Somebody glorify my name. <laughs> you know, Jesus is, I'm just guessing when Jesus returns, he's not going to say that. Jesus is going to return and people are going to be like, yes, Jesus, Jesus, I've been waiting for this day. I hate my job. I'm so glad that I'm done with my job. And Jesus, I'm here. I'm here to make all things new. <laughs> and, and the first thing I'm going to give you to do is go back to your job. But Jesus, this is not paradise. Oh, I know my paradise. Okay, I wrote about it. I showed you what my, par- my paradise involves, work. I ain't no king of some a kingdom, a bunch of lazy subjects that don't want to do nothing. You ever read the parable of the three servants? You ever read that parable? I, I, I wrote that parable. I came up with that parable. You know what I said to the, to the last third servant? Go read it. All right, I ain't no king of some lazy kingdom. We are Pujiranhan kingdom. We are, we are working kingdom. We are diligent kingdom. Hallelujah. Aristotle thought he knew what he was talking about. Work did not come into the world after a golden age of leisure. Work was part of God's original design for human life. God himself did work, and he is still at work today. And because we are created in his image, we ought to also work and do it with joy, reflecting his glory. Amen? I mean, if God does work and he delights in it, if we want to reflect his glory, we ought to do work also like God did. Tim Keller says this, the fact that God put work in paradise is startling to us because we often... Think of work as a necessary evil or even punishment. Lord, I'm sorry for my sins. Go do work. I mean, we're thinking that. Yet we do not see work brought into our human story after the fall of Adam. After the fall of Adam as part of the resulting brokenness and curse. It is part of the blessedness of the garden of God. In other words, work is not a curse. The challenges we face at work can heighten our awareness of sin's effect on on work and on the world. But work itself is not a curse. It is not an evil. Genesis reveals the goodness of work. Everyone at every campus say, the goodness of work. work. Work Work is good. It is very good. Work is built into God's design for mankind. Keller says it like this. Work is as much a basic human need as food, beauty, rest, friendship, prayer, and sexuality. It is not simply medicine, but food for our soul. Without meaningful work, we sense significant inner loss and emptiness. People who are cut off from work because of physical or other reasons quickly discover how much they need work to thrive emotionally, physically, and spiritually. Work is part of God's design. Work is not a curse. Work is not just complementary. It is 
essential. It is just our basic human need is to work. It is food for our soul. You know what Jesus said when he was uh, on the earth? He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. Oh, hallelujah. You know, my food. Jesus, I don't think he just said that when he was doing his public ministry and healing people and casting out demons. When he was hammering away and making wooden objects as a carpenter. I'm like, hey, Jesus, hey, let's take a break. Hey, Jesus, hey, lunch break. Hey, hey, Jesus, hey, 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 hey. Hong Seng, You know, he had brothers, right? Jesus had brothers. And he's like, Hung, all right, let me finish what I'm doing. Why are you so dedicated to your work? Because my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And he sent me to be a carpenter right now. This is my food. You go on your lunch break, get your food. I'm getting mine right now. Jesus was ghetto like that. That's right. He was Galilean. That's right. You think, Je- you think Jesus was all white collar? No, he was blue collar, all right? He, he spoke street vernacular, all right? When he spoke, he didn't speak proper uh, Greek, uh, common Greek. He spoke uh, in um, uh, Aramaic, you know? And so the New Testament translators actually, they translated his words. And that's why, you know, sometimes it doesn't harmonize together because everybody took Aramaic and then they have to translate it into heads into Greek. Anyway, all right. Jesus spoke ghetto. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> work is fundamental. Everybody say work is fundamental. Work is fundamental in God's design of mankind. People mistakenly think that the good life would be consisting of working one day of the week and chilling out for six days of the week. Okay, Try living your life like that. You might enjoy it in the beginning. But ten years of that, you're going to feel like a fool. Because you are violating God's design. Keller points out that if you ask people in nursing homes or in hospitals how they are doing, they often talk about how they wish they had something to do, something useful to to contribute, to help others. They feel that they have too much leisure on their hands and not enough work. You know, the loss of work, Tim Keller says, is deeply disturbing because we are designed for it. The realization injects a deeper and far more positive meaning into the common view that people work in order to survive. According to the Bible, we don't merely need the money from work to survive. We need the work itself in order to live and survive and live fully human lives. What's Keller saying? He's saying that work, you don't work to get a paycheck in order to survive and live your life. God designed it that that work in itself, even if you don't get a paycheck. That's why old people who retire, when they find something meaningful to do, they live for like 50 more years. You're like, how about you? <laughs> You're 100 years old. You've been smoking all your life. I, I know you should be dead by now. Why are you still alive? <clears throat> you know, how about you? like, you know, I, you know, I'm just volunteering down at the community center. They keep telling me to stop smoking, but, you know, I'm trying. <laughs> Why do, why do people, why, do, why are people able, because people work is essential to your just existence and survival because it's part of God's design for you. Keller's book unpacks the practical reasons why work is so essential to our well-being. 
One uh, practical reason being that work is one of the primary ways in which we make ourselves useful to others and not just serve our own selfish interests. Uh, Work is also one of the ways we discover who we are and understand our distinct mix of gifts and strengths, which contributes in large part to our sense of identity. So there's a lot of practical reasons why work is so essential to our well-being. And so, you know, if you want to read more about that, just read the rest of Keller's book. In Exodus 20, verse 9, I mentioned this earlier, God commands his people to take a rest one day of the week. Work and rest. And included in this command that's often overlooked is the command to actually work. We often focus on just the Sabbath, but taken for granted in that command is also the command to work. It is God reinforcing his Genesis mandate. Subdue the earth. Subdue the earth. Subdue the earth. Going back to Genesis, it is worth noting that God himself, he rested after his six days of creating the world. Now, many believers fall into thinking that work is a curse and that they must find meaning and joy in something else. Leisure, family, spiritual pursuits, whatever. The Bible exposes this lie and shows us that there is an inherent goodness and purpose to work. It's a part of his design. But the Bible also keeps us from falling into the opposite mistake. That work is the only important thing in life. And that rest is a necessary evil to tolerate. That we only take the Sabbath rest in order to you know, recharge our batteries. So that we can do more work. So it's all about work, you see. Even the Sabbath rest is all about work. And a lot of us think fall into this kind of theology of the Sabbath. But today, I just want to kind of eradicate that. This is something Pastor Benjamin and Sonny have been teaching us as well. And just reinforced here through Keller's book. Consider this. God, does God have a need to recharge his batteries? Anybody, anybody would like to say yes? No, right? God does not have that need to recharge. And yet, the Bible says he rested. So this must mean that there is a purpose and value in rest other than just physical and emotional recharging and and restoration. Although it does serve that purpose. Tim Keller said it like this. Work is not all there is to life. If you make any work the purpose of your life, even if that work is church ministry, full-time ministers, listen. If you make any work the purpose of your life, you create an idol that rivals God. Your relationship with God is the most important foundation for your life. And indeed, it keeps all the other factors, work, friendships, family, leisure, pleasure, from becoming so important that they become addicting or distorted. What, what, what did he just say? He's saying that work must be subservient to God. So although work has value and God, it was God's idea and he mandated it, we got to keep it in check. Now, um, one thing that pastors Benjamin and Sonny have taught us is this teaching called Sabbath delight. Everybody say Sabbath delight. So, you know, for the first few years of uh, our, our, my ministry when I took over New Philadelphia Church, whenever I had my Sabbath, it would be on a Monday, 
whenever I had a Sabbath, I only thought of my Sabbath as a time to recharge, as a time to rest, so that I can do better work the following week. Well, when Pastor Benjamin and Sonny came into our lives, they were like, no, 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 you're missing a huge part of God's design for Sabbath. And they taught us this thing called Sabbath delight. And in Sabbath delight, although um, Pastor Aaron is much better at this, and I'm still getting into a habit of it, all right? So I'll confess that I'm still learning what it means to do Sabbath delight, all right? But I've done it a few times, okay, already, all right? We've done it a few times. We, we need to do it a little more regularly, honey, right? Amen? Amen. All right, we got we to do, do a little more regularly. But the essential thing of Sabbath delight is on our Sabbath day, Instead of just vegging out, because when, when it was just all about recharging, we just veg out. We just blah. <laughs> I need rest from cooking. All right, so we're just going to order some jajangmyeon. All right, let's chill out. Let's veg out. <laughs> all right, dinner time already. All right, dinner time. I'm too tired to cook. All right, well, let's just order in again another jajangmyeon. All right. And we just rest all day, you know. And, and you know, I would always think, you know, it would be better to, like, read a book rather than watch TV. But you know what, man, I just need to rest even from reading a book, all right? And I just, I just had that mentality. And Pastor Benjamin and Sonny were like, no, that's, that's not, you're not, you're not, not really enjoying the Sabbath right now. You really want to do Sabbath, you got to do this thing called Sabbath delight. Take the time to reflect on the previous week. And just point out the things that you can delight in that God did in or around you. Just point it out. Okay, all right, let me think. All right, honey, you know, this past week, you know, Anna Rowe, she, she just prepared this amazing uh, report for this fellowship event. And I was just thinking, you know, she might just do the bare minimum. Man, she, she had all the numbers, the budget all set. I mean, it was amazing. I just really delighted in that report and over Anna Rowe. I think she's just a, becoming a powerful pastor. Oh, honey, I, I got something to delight in. I really delighted in... When you took time to cook me dinner this past week, it didn't taste that good, but I just delighted in the fact you did it, and I'm sure it will get better and better, honey. I just love you. Okay, my turn, my turn, my turn, my turn. I delight that New Philly, Sydney, who just applied to get visa sponsoring privileges a couple weeks ago, got approved. This is true, by the way. So New Philly, Sydney, we can sponsor religious visas in Australia. It's pretty incredible, right? I delight in that. Because that was a lot of weeks and months of prayer. And God has been faithful to answer. Uh, so that practice of Sabbath delight <clears throat> is really um, kind of like what God does in the book of Genesis. He just takes the time to just delight in the work he did. And we got to learn to do that as well. Uh, Joseph Piper, 20th century German uh, Catholic philosopher, argues that leisure is not the mere absence of work, but an attitude of mind or soul in which you are able to contemplate and enjoy things as they are in themselves without regard to their value or their immediate utility. Okay, the, the, what the guy is saying is, we live in this work-driven society where we value things for utility, for their usefulness. But in order to uh, do this kind of, in order to really have leisure and Sabbath, and Sabbath delight, you've got to learn to disconnect from that 
value system and connect with a different value system where you just look at a flower and you go, you are completely useless. But man, I delight and rejoice over you because you're so darn pretty. You know, like that's what leisure really is. You know, if you go on a vacation to Phuket, right, for a holiday, and you, and you go there and you're on the beaches, and all you can think about is getting on your iPad and answering work emails, and all you can think about is all the work that's piling up that's going to be waiting for you when you get back, all right, you're not really taking time out for leisure. Instead, if you go to Phuket and you disconnect and you just look at the white sandy beaches and you just go, wow, God, this thing is beautiful. You said my descendants would be like the sand on the seashore. Oh, hallelujah. Lord, bless me that I might glorify you by being a blessing to all nations. How many are your thoughts toward me, God? Oh, it's so cool how the waves, they don't come up near to where I'm sitting, where my um, cabana is, whatever. Because it's because of your command, those waves don't go any further. Man, God, you have created everything so beautifully. Just being able to delight in that way, that is what it really means to have that, uh, to do what God did when he took his Sabbath. <clears throat> so in summary, God designed the world and mankind so that work is an essential component that gives meaning to our human existence. It is part of his design. Work is a gift from God, and it is part of his design. But we must remember that work before we idolize it or get over-obsessed with it, work is always to be subservient. It is need, needs to be submitted to God in, subor- in subordination to God. Work must regularly hold still so that you can physically rest and recharge, but also so that you can delight in the beauty and the good that's in and around you. So for the people in this room that say, I hate work, I dread it. I can't stand it, but going to New Philadelphia Church makes it all worthwhile. Uh, I want to challenge you today. Let the word of God renew your mind regarding your work. Well, my work is so difficult. You don't understand how nasty people get. They all gossiping about me. All right, your work may be amplifying the effects of sin on the world. But remember that work in itself is a gift. It is good. And it's not a curse. For those who are on the other side, who are obsessed with the work, who can't get enough, who find validation and worth from it and idolize it, and you do not, you tear up your body's health in the process of career advancement or just getting the affirmation and validation you find. I would also encourage you to remember that God commanded that you work, but he also commanded that you rest. Honor the limits that God has put on work. That's also part of his design. Tim Keller, uh, he says it like this. There is no better starting point for a meaningful work life than a firm grasp of this balanced work and rest theology. Okay, so I'm going to end the sermon here today. <clears throat> like I said, next week, I'm going to mess you up. Because <laughs> it's going to address a lot of issues that I see the young people of our congregation struggling with. But for today, we're going to close it at that. I'm just kind of laying that foundation. uh, And we'll continue with this with two more sermons in the series. All right, let's pray.
Father, I thank you that, Lord, that you have given us the gift of work. I thank you that, Lord, uh, whether people in this room, they are studying in order to work or they are currently working or they're looking for work, whatever situation they're in, I pray, Holy Spirit, you will renew our minds in regards to work. That we will not dread and hate it and see it as a curse. And at the same time, we will not idolize it and give our soul toward it. But that we would always stay in the beautiful balance that's shown to us in your word. Where you worked and then you rested and then you commanded us to do the same. Lord, we have been created in your image and our hearts desire as your people on this earth. Although many people on this earth do not know you, those who believe in Christ, we know you personally. We desire to reflect your image and glory accurately, precisely. So I pray right now for those who felt heavy laden for the work that they're assigned to do right now. I just pray joy. I just speak out joy. I just speak out joy in Jesus' name. The Lord fill you with joy. The joy that he had when he created the world. The joy he had when he was planting that garden. God did it with a smile. Everything he does, he does not do it because he's backed up against the wall. He does it out of his good pleasure. He does it out of his joy. And as the people of God, I pray that we would also reflect that glory and that joy. No matter what work assignment we currently have. No matter how the devil tries to attack us and tell us it's pointless. You're not a teacher. You're stuck at this dead-end job. We break off those lies right now. For God, you are the one who gives us the ability to produce wealth. You have given us favor, favor that has opened up these doors for employment. And from that thanksgiving, we choose, Lord.